Hello and welcome to episode number 26 of Earth Repair Radio. Rania has gotten a grant from the World Bank, a really large grant, where they're working again with like 100,000 farmers um, to show how permaculture has solutions for drought mitigation and climate change. In that village, we did... Um, we transformed five farms and um, we worked with all widows and most were cotton suicide widows. There's real now real, real interest from these poor small farmers to try permaculture. Why doesn't California have a statewide rainwater harvesting program like India has a national rainwater harvesting program? Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today our guest is Rhea Cole. Rhea is the coordinator of the Living Ecology Project, and she's based in California, but has spent about half of the last five years in India working alongside with Aranya Agricultural Alternatives, teaching and implementing permaculture with rural villagers. Rhea has a whole suite of courses coming up this fall and winter in India, teaching alongside India's permaculture pioneers, Narsana and Padme Coppola. So please enjoy this episode as we delve into what Rhea has learned from her time in India and what she has planned for the future. Good morning, Rhea. How are you doing? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Saying uh, the rains seem like they started early here in Oregon. Uh, how's the weather down there in, in the Sierra Nevadas of California? Well, lovely and sunny, but we're definitely feeling the fall change and getting some cooler nights and we're getting our hot days and some cooler days. So yeah, we're feeling the fall change also. Nice. Well, um, it's been really good. Uh, I guess I, every time I go to an international permaculture conference, I seem to run into you with your children in tow and uh, you're kind of trekking all over the place and um, bringing your you know, you're, you're like kind of running around with a baby strapped to one side. And I was, was really, uh, I was really impressed by your, um, your like strength and vigor out there in the world. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so, uh, so you live in the U S, um, but you do a lot of work, uh, in rural India. How did that all come about for you? Well, um, more than 20 years ago now, right out of high school, I went to Africa. I went to West Africa in Ghana and um, worked with a program there. And I was really transformed by it because I you know, came from a middle class upbringing and didn't want for anything. And I went to a place where every family had lost a child due to a preventable illness, mostly from waterborne things, but also malnutrition and other diseases. And I was really affected by that. Like I needed to change my life in a way that my life wasn't dependent on other people in a way that caused them suffering. Cause uh, you know, a lot of the products we have come from other places other countries where there's either, you know, in India, for example, it's like all the pesticides that we have banned are allowed there. Mm. Or our clothing, we purchase our clothing from cotton made from India, and cotton is a GMO crop that uses a lot of chemicals and severely affects the land and people, um, as well as socially, you know, with the farmer suicides related to the debt um, from this kind of GMO crops. And so, after I came back, I really felt like I needed to change my life and figure out how I could live like gently on the earth and in a way that was um, just to all the people. So that began my permaculture journey. And many years later, after a lot of training and practice, um, I went to study with Jeff Lawton in uh, Australia uh, about how he was doing his international permaculture work. And uh, when I came back, I met my husband and uh, he's spent 12 years of his life in India. He's a scholar of uh, Indian subjects, a Sanskrit scholar, Ayurvedic doctor and uh, Vedic astrologer. And so we went to India and I was like, okay, well, I'm connected to India forever now. So um, what am I gonna do here? And uh, we went to visit, 
some people that we had found on the internet that uh, were doing permaculture work in India and went to see what they were doing because I had learned from this other project that I had done in Africa that the best way to work in another country was to connect with a local organization and to support their work. Um, and so we went to visit Aranya Agricultural Alternatives uh, in India and uh, Bill Mollison, who's one of the co-originators of permaculture had visited with Narsana when he was also just out of college and he had been highly um, affected by him and he had an Indian mentor who was a professor who was doing permaculture methods and that's how Bill had come there and so I met with them and they had just been given the international permaculture convergence to host which was a big undertaking for an organization that helps so many like thousands and thousands of farmers but actually has like a small core group of people who really hold that down and so I I told them about my idea about what I was wanting to do and in general in India and they were like well why don't you do that here with us and help us with this permaculture convergence and I said sure that sounds great and so that's how my permaculture journey started in India and connected with Aranya Agricultural Alternatives. Yeah, so for people that, I actually, I did interview Narsana and Padma on a, on a previous podcast, but um, for people who don't know, do you want to talk a little bit about the work that you came into um, that Narsana and Padma have been doing for, you know, 30 years or so there in India? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they uh, are an organization. One of the amazing things about India is that India has a national uh, water harvesting program. And so they are an organization, a nonprofit that uh, they get not uh, grants from the government and from other organizations to do a lot of water harvesting work or work with farmers. And then they input the permaculture through that. Um, so. Uh, they've worked with thousands of farmers and reforested huge amounts of areas. The state where they are, Telangana, is a state that's been experiencing a lot of drought and is severely deforested. Like, we'll drive through huge areas that were, like, in the last 10 years deforested. And when you, everybody's farming there now. And when you look, it's you see, like, barren rock and shallow soils and the water table has dropped significantly, like, in the village... Um, the recent village we've been working in, the water has dropped from 30 feet to 300 feet in six years. Wow. In Hyderabad, the major city, it dropped from uh, 300 feet to 1,800 feet in the same period of time. In six years? Yeah, six to eight years in Hyderabad. Wow. So they're, you know, running out of water uh dramatically there and the you know the villages will run out of drinking water which will have to get shipped in and they're depleting the groundwater at high rates and permaculture has solutions for these things like we're just doing some simple water harvesting structures and even when they're not getting the monsoon they're getting these like very few rains these water harvesting structures are recharging their wells and they're having water throughout the drought period in the summer. Mm. Um, so yeah, they've been teaching about um, mixed, diverse, uh, perennial-based uh, cropping, but mixed with their annual crops, because one of the things about India is they really have a long history of food self-sufficiency, which means they're growing their grains and their legumes, like their beans, their lentils, as well as their oil seed crops. So they're growing their oil. Um, and vegetables are a much smaller portion. And then what we've been trying to integrate there a lot is the perennial base with the different um, fruits and things that will like supplement their nutrition. Mm. Because the current the current thing that's going on is people have lost their traditional diet um, due to a lot of like government subsidies and government incentives to move more towards cash crops so the nutrition has like really dropped there people are instead of growing their own grain crop which would be traditionally uh, rain-fed millets they are depending on uh, government subsidized white rice which they get for like one rupee a kilo mm. and so their main diet now is like in in the areas where i'm working so in the poor village areas 
will be like 90% white rice with a small amount of dal and small amount of vegetables. So what we're doing is, and then the nutrition's gone down and health has gone down and you know, the low infant birth weight rates, uh, weights and things like that. Hmm. So. Yeah. Now, um, the water tables dropping, um, in recent times, what, what is it that's precipitated such a dramatic drop in the water tables in just this last, you know, six to eight years that wasn't happening 20 years ago? Well, where we're working is um, an area of rain-fed agriculture. And so they have a period, a monsoon period, so a rainy time of three months. And they'll plant their crops in that rainy period of time. And then they'll grow for the whole season and be harvested. And they do a second crop that will be called the dew crop, the dew-fed crop. So the leftover moisture in the soil will actually, and the dew from the mornings will actually create a whole other crop. But now that's like completely changed and people are drilling wells and um, using, doing cash crops in the hopes that that would like help their family be able to pay for a good education for their kids. And, you know, people are getting motorcycles instead of like where I work, like it was usually um, male cows, bullocks, they call them, was the method of transportation for all the villagers and bicycles. And so, you know, now phones are there and people are needing money. And uh, so they're changing to these cash crops. But what's happening is that the cash crops aren't actually like providing that much more for their family when we kind of did like a rough economic analysis of it. And so they're extracting water for they're getting a loan for these deep wells of mm -hmm. 300 feet and then they're trying to keep up with these payments and payments for pesticides and payments for chemical fertilizers and there's getting to be a lot of debt and these debts are um, causing what a lot of people have heard of in you know over here of the farmer suicides where you know the debt is just so much people feel like I'll never get out of it some people think that their debt might be forgiven if they do that, which is not the case mm. in most cases. And then that will, you know, get left usually on the wife that's mm. left behind with the children. Mm. And so, yeah, there's just a lot of a lot of water extraction that wasn't there before, combined with the deforestation, which now is running off all the water instead of soaking it in. Mm. Um, with the less organic matter in the soil and the soils yeah. are running away and you just see a lot of areas that are like barren rock where if you walk into a forested area there there's like a shallow you know layer of soil on top of that yeah well I remember at Aranya farm uh, when we were touring and shown the well there that was you know the, the hand dug well I mean you could see the bedrock was just you know six to 12 inches below the surface. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of soil on top there to start with. And I know that they're, they're in a little bit of a, like a plateau, like a more higher, probably more prone to being rocky area to start with. Yeah. And when the thing about doing permaculture with the perennial based agriculture, then you're having trees that actually is called laterite soil. And the rock mm. is actually pretty easy to break up with tree roots mm. And so, and then you can convert it to something that plants some tree roots, like tree roots that are strong to bust up that rock. And then combined with creating the organic matter from the leaves that are falling and biomass producing plants, plants that are producing a lot of leaf matter or sticks that can be cut back to be producing soil. And all of a sudden quickly in a trop, you know, it's tropic, subtropical area, you quickly can build soil. Mm -hmm. there but it's also quickly being lost and then once there's no soil there to help sink the water in then you're having the water running away instead of being restored in the water table yeah so you're you're painting this little bit of a picture of uh increased development and so suddenly people have a need for money for like you said motorcycles and cell phones and that sort of thing and so when you're saying they're switching... Education is a big one. Okay, education, right. And so, um, which, you know, I mean, 
I want education for my children, and that's it's going to be hard to find someone in the world that doesn't want increased education for their children. Um, so, and then you're talking about how mostly this millet is their traditional crop, but when you're saying they're switching to cash crops, you're talking about cotton. Is it mostly people? Could you generalize and say it's mostly people switching from rain-fed millet to groundwater-fed cotton? Is that the general trend? Well, it's different in different areas. The um, area where I worked the first year, it was the whole village was growing entirely cotton. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. And, And it wasn't working for them economically. It wasn't producing, you know, the BT cotton, the GMO cotton starting to have pest issues anyways and they're spraying all these chemicals and the soil looks barren and they're barely getting anything out of it to pay back the debts and one of the things that I really realized from working where I'm working in like poor rural India is that we have such a privilege of education so we would do these community meetings or village meetings where we would be talking about you know we would talk in general to people on just like family to family, but we'd also have big uh, village meetings where anyone can come. And they didn't know what else that they could do anymore. They kind of like forgotten the things in the past that had been done um, and were just doing what people had told them now was the right thing to do. Like one woman said, she's like, I don't know what else to do. If you can grow food without chemicals, she's like, I'll cut off all my hair. I'd be so surprised. And so... Yeah, so it's that kind of thing that we we take for granted that we have access to the internet, we have access to books, we have access to a good education to be able to know what else we can do if we're encountering problems that we don't know what to deal with. And so in that village we did, um, we transformed five farms and we worked with all widows and most were cotton suicide widows, but mm. also from illness and things. and. We did a seed distribution program, so it's not just millets that they'd be growing. They'd be growing the inner crop with their legumes, their lentils, as well as their oil seed crops. And so that's a soil building combination. You know, we have the nitrogen of the legumes and then the grain crops are providing a lot of biomass and carbon in their stalks. And so it'll be a building soil crop rather than a depleting crop. And so we gave away a lot of these traditional seeds that they remembered their grandparents eating, you know, but they are not eating anymore. And we did like a seed contest to see who could name all these traditional seeds and got interest going. And when I go back to that village now, it's amazing is that there's been a huge transformation of of using their more traditional grains and having the cotton is way less there because they realize actually that that wasn't supporting them economically like they thought and these uh the awareness of you know in there's an area where they have like a cancer train going from all the chemicals and going to delhi on a regular basis with the farmers that are affected they know they're being affected by the chemicals and so when they can be shown now people are getting like awareness of that the upper middle class and middle class are wanting to return to a traditional diet so they're able to grow their crops for their own family as well as to sell these traditional crops to people who are wanting to buy them so it's working for them this change back to the traditional methods and with a little infusion of the permaculture with having the perennial based systems is really helpful right now with the drought one Mm. planting trees will help reduce the drought but when you have a rain-fed agriculture system that means you don't have an irrigation method if the water rain doesn't come your crop fails and one year i was there 90 percent of crops in that state failed by the time i left a month and a half into the monsoon because there was no rain so in that kind of system then having diverse system creates stability for yourself economically and food wise so the trees planted on rainwater harvesting structures only need water which you could do by hand for the first couple years and then they're able to get the water from the ground table and to be thriving and so there's income at various parts of the year as well as food and um, different products that they need or can sell Mm -hmm. 
and also will build the soil in their annual cropping area where they're growing their grains and legumes and oil seeds. Yeah. So now is Aranya uh, creating a seed bank? I mean, you had to have seed to distribute to these farms. Yeah, they are known from all over to have seeds. People come from all over and they just give them away. And um, in the seed distribution program that we did in the village, um, we gave the seed with um, that they, after the end of the crop, they would give the same amount of seed back. Okay. Um, so like a, a creating a rep, rep, reciprocity with that and being able to, you know, that they can give back and help the next people. Um, be able to have seed and do that transformation for themselves. Yeah. Now, have you gone through the process, say, with with Narsana of, of you know, going to a village for the first time and, uh, you know, the, the sort of introductory process of getting this um, permaculture transformation going in, in some of these areas? Yeah, that was uh, the first village that I worked in with them was an area where they had funding to do the water harvesting, but they hadn't really started the work in that area. And so I went with my group of interns and we started out with a social study of like just talking to people and finding out what the situation is going on in the village, what their, they perceive their issues as, what, you know, checking in with the um, community health clinic and what the health clinic says their issues were and, talking to them about the economics of things and you know one of these uh things that's been an issue for them to do their traditional agriculture is they would plow with bullocks and it's a really like low impact method on the soil as well as they would use the cow dung to reincorporate into the soil but now with these smaller plots um, of land there's like less food for the cows and so they're getting away from that and going to tractors which then increases the debt and compacts the soil doesn't let the water soak in and they see all that but they don't know how to what the solutions were to that and so one of the solutions for that was to plant live fences so instead of putting up fencing we plant trees and bushes really close by and thorny things and in that we'll have fodder plants in there so like getting the fodder to be growing on every farm as well as um we get areas for community land and create like a community fodder forest so that there's um people can go in there and trade in and get uh fodder for their animals Hmm. yeah so tell us give us a little picture of what you've seen as the most successful case study of this uh, transformation and like how long it's been going on and you know how how big are these villages and and what are really the conditions that you see that have changed uh, so I can talk maybe about the like so I've been working there for five years but so to talk what you're talking about would be like further back into the beginning of Narsana and Padma's work in that area and it's pretty amazing because they've planted like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of trees and worked with hundreds of thousands of farmers and when you are just driving through Telangana it's just a barren state most of the trees are cut down except for way off into the forest and when you arrive in an area where Padma and Narsana have been working you just feel like you're like entering an oasis. You know, there's green, people are sitting under trees instead of it being like totally hot and it's lush and there's like moisture in the air instead of dry. And uh, they always work with women's groups because they um, have found, as many people have found in development, that women will then reinvest in their families and the villages. Um, and be more concerned with the health and well-being of the people. Mm. Um, So we'll sit and talk with these women, and they'll talk about how their women's groups have supported each other through loans and what products they're making with these things and how they're managing their community fodder forest or their community medicine area. And Yeah, so you're seeing... It's like the the a difference of diversity of food is one of like the big things. You just see a lot of iron deficiency in the faces of the women. There'll be big black spots and mm. um in those villages it's 
they've been able to like step themselves up, particularly with creating the fodder for us, because that's a really good income producing. And then they're able to send their children to school because um, the public schools there are free, but they're not good at all. And so if mm. your child is going to have any chance to do a different kind of job than farming, they need to go to a private school. Mm. So, yeah, seeing that and it takes a lot of support. Um, for the initial years, um, you know, s s people are coming in, giving them a different idea, like Padma Narsana or myself or whoever that is. And there's kind of like they have to see it to believe it kind of thing. So there's been a lot of need for support in the initial years until the trees there's a see it to believe it, but there's also the real need for like economics in the moment. Like they can't wait for four years till their trees are producing enough fruit. They need like the money right now to either go to wage labor, daily wage labor when we're working with the poorest of the poor, like they're, you know, needing to get their food for the next week. Right. <laughs> so there's a lot of, they don't have that like extra time and financial ability to plan for something for their future. They're like needing it in the moment. So, um, what Narsana and Padma say and what I've seen is there's a lot of need for support in the first five years for that work of maybe watering their trees by hand and carrying the water is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing how their soil is transforming, you have to build up the soil first. Um, in a lot of these places where we've worked is like totally denuded, no soil. So the initial crops aren't that good either. And so we have to build up the soil and show that it will be in an abundant productive place and we t sometimes take tours to them to like other farmers who have um who have done those methods and see what they can do and let them talk and speak about it and yeah so yeah I'm, I'm i'm interested a little more about what you said about how they always work with the women's groups um do you want to talk a little bit more about how society is that the women's groups are are such a leverage point versus how or how maybe men's groups are not necessarily a leverage point like how does that work yeah well it's it's interesting because um the the women they really are thinking of the whole village you know i don't know how to say it in a way that you know honors <laughs> what's all going on because I don't have the whole cultural viewpoint you know even five years of being there almost half the year um, learning how this all goes but the when the women's groups are coming together they're making sure that that money is getting saved for their children's clothing and education and they're reinvesting it into things that will continue to make um, economic um, abundance for their family they're also um, uplifting uplifting themselves because in India the women do not have the same status as the men so it's helpful in that sense um, as well and there's in a lot of areas that I've been working there's a drinking alcohol problem with the men and so um, concentrating some of the power with the women means that that money won't be going to something that's not helping the family yeah um, yeah so. it, it probably it's, pro it's probably sort of reflective of you know if women were in charge of everything in society i think that in general uh resources would be used more wisely and you know things would probably be set out better for everybody yeah the women are desiring motorcycles you know to be able to zip to town on or whatever that's taking then money away from sending their kids to school or whatever so right interesting and they're also they want to eat their traditional foods like i've talked to many of them that are like trying to convince their husbands to you know set aside the area for their traditional foods but they're you know they need that kind of education to say like actually that is you know about the same economic productivity if we grow our own food as we used to rather than you know purchasing it so and yeah. selling it or growing now it probably makes a big difference having outsiders uh like aranya coming in 
and suddenly saying, actually, this is this other way and explaining it. Like you said, there's not a lot, there's not internet access, there's not a ton of education. So it seems like probably the information that Aranya is bringing into a village is, uh, it's, it's like a substantial event when people are arriving and, and demonstrating or, you know, teaching about some other method. Yeah, and one of the best ways in these kind of, like, areas where there's a lot of illiterate people and, like, not um, educated in, like, a schooling method is is that sh- doing is the way to, to teach, you know? Like, let's, let's mulch a tree right here while we're talking about it in the village and then water it and watch how uh, the mulch creates that the water doesn't run away when you water it for one Uh, and then you know check two days later and see the moisture level on that mulch tree right beside the unmulched tree and so there's a lot of just like uh, teaching by doing you know let's Mm -hmm. plant a a live fence here and see see like have it the methods show what it is more more showing than talking is actually the most effective way there and this uh, this last year that I worked there, I worked with a school, and that was actually one of my favorite projects because the children are so inspired, and those children will become farmers. And like they, they had the most barren, hot, totally rock schoolyard, and we just planted tons of trees and a vegetable garden, and the food that they were eating at school was just pretty dismal. Like it was like 2% something besides white rice, you know, and the area is now just like this totally lush schoolyard with fruits that they hadn't even like tasted. Like there where I work, it's like a maybe once or twice a month, you'll get a piece of fruit. Hmm. And so, um, you know, the abundance of that in the schoolyard is so inspiring to the kids that they had this area was so hot and not fun to be in in their schoolyard. And now they have all these trees that grow rapidly, actually, in that area, providing shade and providing food. And I feel like that, you know, as we get older, we're less easy to change. And with the children seeing like, wow, having fruit a part of my diet is like a wonderful thing and I want to plant trees on my land and I know how to do that I know that they will grow and you know it's a successful example right in the middle of the village of uh, what can be done on we did it on a just total bedrock we had to actually like hire um one of those machines that you like what do you call those a jackhammer yes a jackhammer to like dig the holes for the trees because it was impossible to do it um i've planted a lot of trees with jackhammers (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so um yeah well it's also just amazing to think that it's gotten to the level where there aren't there isn't fruit around even in this tropical area where so many different fruits will grow uh even grow by you know rain fed once they're established and to think that the kids there are only getting one piece of fruit a month and you know i think we sort of take that for granted just the dietary uh importance of just having those extra vitamins um yeah how i mean would you have some perspective of like how long has it been since like like where where is the gap you know how long has it been since traditional crops were planted there i mean is it the green revolution is it the 70s the 50s you know what what's the time frame do you know well definitely the green revolution what what were the dates on the green revolution i mean i think the green revolution was the 70s that's my recollection i could be wrong that's yeah that's about when i would date it back to because arenia's work you know, started like after the Green Revolution, it started there 30 years ago, 35 years ago now, which is like right back to about that time. And that was the time when it was a very different system there also, where the lower caste mostly didn't have their own land. And that was some of the first work that Aranya did was the social justice advocacy to get the lowest caste people their own pieces of land. They were working on other other people's land and that was the time when the methods were changing and so that's why it's kind of like in far back history it's like the grandparents that remember doing the you know and people don't have quite as long of a lifespan there either so Mm. you know it's the people in their 60s that are remembering 
what what it was like before. And then it's been the past 15 years that there's been a real switch to the cash crops. Like it was changing, but it wasn't changing as much as it's changed in the last 10 years and started like 15 years ago and more dramatically in the last eight years. Like everybody is switching now to sugar cane, mm-hmm. cotton, uh, corn, um, as being some of the main crops that they're going for. Mm. What do you feel like the scale of the reversal that's happening? You know, I know that Aranya, I know when, when I was at the permaculture convergence and uh, hearing about the scale and, uh, in, in India, a lakh, a lakh is 100,000. And I mm-hmm. know that Narsana was talking, lack. a lakh, lakh. Yeah. yeah, and I know that Narsana was talking about the amount of people that he had taught permaculture to in lakhs he was measuring it in you know units of a hundred thousand people for example so i mean like like in the in in these areas that it's really that the examples are really being created and that it's you know spreading from village to village as people see the successes you know is it how how fast is it turning around in those places uh you know i don't know it's like slow and changing a lot at the same time and one of the amazing I know they work with like yeah hundreds of thousands of farmers like they have these systems set up where one farmer will represent you know a hundred farmers and that one farmer that's the representative will meet with their hundred farmers and then all those representatives will meet with each other and learn so they have this really amazing way of like getting information from a meeting, let's say, with Aranya to get spread out to all of the farmers. And um, the one of the things that's been amazing is this the international permaculture convergence, actually, and how much it's spread permaculture. Um, it just created so much interest there. And um, Padma and Narsana were working with the very poorest of the poor. And when working with them, the, the change is a little bit more slow. And um, now they've been with the International Permaculture Convergence. They started teaching actual permaculture design courses. And they always have subsidized people coming who come and they do them for so such a low price that it's accessible to absolutely everybody. Um, but the middle class people who are there's a bunch of middle class people um, in like mid aged range that are going in the back to the lands. And what I'm seeing right now has become my focus of the students and the courses that I'm running is to target them as like making the courses accessible to them in a short enough time frame. I used to do these several month long internships so they would learn everything. Um, But these people are, the middle class people are like have a plot of land in their village that they might not be using anymore, that they are doing a city job, but now they're going back to the land, growing their own foods, and then they're helping to transform their village. It's been amazing. It's like, if if that happened here, like every PDC student was like in a transform, like help transform a village of hundreds of people. It's like, I'm just seeing such rapid change on like all these people who I know that were students, or students of Aranya are like doing all this amazing work everywhere. So right now I'm seeing this like incredible explosion of interest in it. And I think particularly the this like impending drought is really now with the poorer farmers, it's like they have to change. The impending drought, it, you said? Yeah, the, yeah, there's been a lot of drought the last four or five years and it's not looking like it's going to change there. And so they don't that now the these poor farmers are like now I have real need you know mm-hmm. before I was like able to extract the water and you know increase my debt load and now they're really seeing like that this isn't it's not working mm-hmm. so um I was talking because I didn't Padma said there's real now real real interest from these poor small farmers to try permaculture there's been an it's, it's interesting They transform from like hard pieces of rock and nothing with trees and orchards and stuff. A lot of the, those were done by these women's groups in the past. And now their sons have taken over their land 
you know? And mm. then there's been a lot of cutting down of the trees because the soil got built and bust up the rock. Oh. And so they've been like converting them to like these irrigated cash crops oh. that are like being productive. So like in some of these places that we've been going, they're like, look what permaculture could do. Like I had this piece of rock and now I have this like fertile piece of land and you know look what we're producing out of it and you know talking to them you know as a part of the course and part of the program or like the visit with the farmers but like so how are you giving back to the soil now how are you you dismantled this rainwater harvesting thing like it's so interesting to work with like the poorest of the poor you know in my you know earlier years i worked a lot like in soup kitchens and homeless shelters and stuff with the catholic worker movement and it's kind of there's like a little bit of like that similarity of that um just like shorter term thinking you know and mm -hmm. you'll see like places where they've been working where there's orchards but that's why i'm like really excited about working with these like middle class indians because they're really wanting to grasp onto the methods like in the whole form and mm -hmm. they're not they're not going to do that you know after, yeah. i don't think you know yeah. after they have their successful land transformation then just be like okay i'm going for the fastest cash crop possible you know so there's there's both going on so i'm not sure you know, when I go, like, talking about going to those areas where there's, like, huge forests and things going on, like, that Aranya is planted, you know, the individual plots I haven't gone to as much to see how they're all going. Like, I've seen some of them in yeah. areas, you know. I didn't do a lot of, like, visiting all their past things. I have visited some past things and seen, like, the amazingness of that. And particularly just like the reforestation gone on around the village and in the village is like amazing. When I like think about it, there's like inspiring things in different places, but like, yeah, the flashy, like this whole village transformed, uh, you know, a permaculture method. It's like things transform, things go backwards and they realize like this isn't working now like we want to move forward again into like why did we take apart all of our rainwater harvesting and now you know the water levels dropping in the well it's just like it's the real work there's yeah. like you know it's like when people talk about what I'm doing I'm like yeah it's like amazing and we're doing so much and then there's like the difficulties of like when the farmer just like decides not to water their trees and like yeah we have to pay an Aranya employee to go and water their trees to make the thing successful, right. you know? Like, right. hmm. So that's that's the like real world part. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about your upcoming classes? I know you're going back to India and you have a whole bunch of work you're doing with Aranya all kind of laid out. Yeah, I'm, uh, so my organization is called... Uh, living ecology and uh, I'm running seven different courses this year with Aranya, um, a permaculture design course and a permaculture teacher training, a rainwater harvesting uh, course so people really get in. So all of these courses we all do a community interaction with. So the rainwater harvesting course you get the information on it but and you get a lot of hands-on field practice and then we'll work with a small farmer in the local village and help them install uh, rainwater harvesting on their land. Um, so you get the the in-classroom learning and the hands-on but also like the give back to the community uh, with them and then going to be running a mapping course so you can learn how to map your plot of land to scale um, so you can do your planning appropriately for your permaculture design and uh, going to be running a permaculture design consultancy course so how to if you're wanting to run your own business or do consultancy for other people what are the steps that you'll go through to do that and uh, you know, it's like the, all these things I were set up to be like, what's next after the PDC? Like, how do we increase our skills? How do we get mentorship? And how do we bring it to the next level? So the consultancy course will also go into design process. Like, how do you decide how to design with all of our design philosophy and methods? And how do we put that actually into practice? And um, 
We'll be doing a school course also, one we'll, where you'll learn methods to uh, what kinds of teaching programs can be set up to integrate with the curriculum, as well as doing the design for an actual school and uh, helping to begin to install it. When we're there, we'll be we'll have to wait till monsoon for some of it. Um, so we'll be doing that, and then we'll have a more apprenticeship style course where we're going to go um, and follow the work that Aranya has gotten a grant from the World Bank, a really large grant where they're working again with like 100,000 farmers um, to show how permaculture has solutions for drought mitigation and climate change. And so uh, we'll be supporting whatever work that they're doing there, like installing rainwater harvesting and uh, they've gone to this thing of like helping people just change like a quarter acre of their land into a permaculture area so that they can start to provide uh, a more diverse and food self-sufficiency for the family and sort of gain what I was saying you need to like gain that confidence that you know you can't just tell somebody who has like very little um, economic ability to like transform your whole land believe in my method it's gonna be great you know and so if they transform like a quarter of their land or a quarter acre of their land and then see great success with it, then their people are scaling up from there. So, um, in that so a area, if, if you're that, so a quarter acre, like how, how big is a farm typically? Like how many acres is a farm that's taking a quarter acre out and transforming it? The average farm there is one to three acres. So, um, and then, you know, that's getting smaller, fat, like, rapidly because as the children basically the sons of a family um get older than the land and the father is dividing up the land it gets divided to the son so the plots of land are getting smaller and smaller mm. very fast or no access to land either yeah so if you have three acres or even one acre of course uh a quarter acres is it is significant chunk yeah. right there yeah all of them yeah and so the whole thing was to like bring you through all the things you would need to know if you wanted to do a permaculture culture consultancy either for yourself and your own land or for other people and so you would like get all the knowledge and then put the skills into practice and then really get it into your body and your mind about how to do that because you know it's a it's all good to talk about what the contour is and what the level of the land is when you get out onto the land and you see people trying to figure that out and to have the guidance to you know be able to read the landscape with the water and what the water is doing when there's no water there um yeah so putting it into practice is a really crucial part of that and then each students will work in groups and so you'll not only learn from the plot that the students are your group is working on but then you'll be able to go to all the other groups work and then learn from what they've done too and what is the uh the demographics you typically have i mean you've talked about you have you know middle class indians you have westerners and people from the u.s come and take your classes and you know how does what's yeah the and the first thing? the first years i had all foreigners and i had people from australia and all over europe and um people from the u.s um yeah to join in and now i'm getting more of a mix because i had set up those first um first programs to be like four month long programs mm. so people who were like working and had families couldn't come basically and so now I'm like setting them up to be like five day to ten day long classes and the ten day rainwater harvesting one I also set up in a smaller chunk to be five days for somebody who might only be able to do five days um, so trying to make them accessible to um, everyone and we do have some villagers join in usually but they usually don't join in for the whole course they'll come for like a little bit of it the working with the villagers more tends to be like working on their land okay and then you'll get like uh, some young middle class Indian people from Hyderabad or Chennai or something coming out just like in the same way that say in the US you would have uh, people coming out to uh to a site to do a you know a PDC out in kind of a rural location yeah but we have young all the way to like elders coming with I would say the majority of the those people coming the Indians coming would be you know from 25 to 45 actually so like a nice big spread in the middle nice yeah that's great 
Um, and then how, how can people learn more about what you're doing and, and get in touch with you? Um, you can check out my website, which is www.livingecology.org. Nice. And what are the what are the dates? Like when when's your program start? Uh, the first uh, course is uh, November 9th and starts with a PDC and then goes all the way through to the end of January. Nice. So you'll you'll be in uh, see November. You'll probably you're going to spend three months over in India this winter. Yeah. Nice. And I'm looking forward to it. Whenever I'm there, I'm always like, there's nothing better I could be doing with my life. Like the impact is so huge. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's hard with two little kids and a stepdaughter and a husband who's working here and all these things to to commit and be over there. We have, you know, we're so lucky with our Northern California life and the ease and all these things. And but whenever I'm there, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, every day is so significant. You know what it, this work is doing to like restore water in people's wells and like bring fruit to children who aren't getting any fruit and to vegetables to be more incorporated in people's diets and changing nutrition and mm-hmm. health of the soil. It's like an imminent thing in India. You know, the water crisis is really real there. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I would love for people to join if they can come because the more people we have come to take these classes, the more villagers we'll work with and the more inspiration there is for people to learn from. Yeah, I'm curious about like what do you feel is the benefit to having uh, like Westerners involved and coming into these places that are are not used to seeing people from – you know, from the U.S. or from Canada, like what, what is the kind of dynamic, like, like how is that a benefit or, you know, versus is there, is there some circumstances where it seems like, like it's detrimental? Yeah, that's an interesting question um, to suss out how that is exactly. I think the one, the important thing is that we work with a local organization that teaches us what's appropriate in approaching a community and how to work it within a community. Um, and what I feel is like to be really aware is that we are learning as foreigners so much more than we're actually like giving back in a way. Like I've learned so much from there and just like a low impact lifestyle like permaculture there is on so much more of a roots level with than what we do here in terms of even using things like a tarp or rain barrels or whatever it is there's like plastic is just not a part of the picture over there or you know going to buy straw or importing cardboard from somewhere they're like literally growing all of their biomass things and so yeah working with foreigners has been interesting because it's a large part of like education about like awareness of the way we're enculturated and the way we think of what we have to offer i'm i'm using like the royal we you know um how we have the way and we're bringing it to help these people when really the method is the more appropriate method is to what do we have to learn from the people here and how can we like share their traditional knowledge or share it in a way that's appropriate. Um, which I saw a lot during the international permaculture convergence, people just Aranya Narsana and Padma had a lot to say about what worked in their area with the kind of soil they had, the kind of climate they had and the people that they were working with. And a lot of people came in, but this is the best method of composting to do it like this, to get the most aerobic uh, bacteria and fungal components. And they were just like, but that doesn't work in our area, you know? Mm. But so the, so there's a lot to learn from, from that in terms of diversity. Um, I was talking to someone who specializes in diversity issues when I came back from the International Permaculture Convergence about how to create this awareness as more a part of my programs and what people are doing. And there's this, she she talked about it and it was such a like strong word for me initially, but like a white supremacist attitude mm. that like we know the way you know or we have the most education about this and so 
my approach and the approach that I bring to the students is what we really have to do is like learn from the people here of their methods and and teach those ones and then like slowly like as we gain trust and friendship um try our ideas that we have or the knowledge that we have and see how that integrates into their system and their climate and their ways of life is a slow thing it's like a longer term thing than just to come in for a couple months and be like i know the way which you need to change all your ideas into going like this and so yeah when your water table's dropping uh you know in you know six to eight years dropping hundreds of feet like you obviously have a very real and sort of dire predicament that needs to be addressed in some way you know pretty rapidly yeah and india has like you know this huge long history from like thousands of years of water harvesting yeah so like what were the methods that they were using that had whole like cities you know living on on the methods that they use for rainwater harvesting like they were totally water self-sufficient in those times um and they weren't extracting from deep down so what do we want to learn from that? What do we know now from our modern knowledge and how does that integrate together? How do we want to use those things together? Yeah. And I guess on the other side, I'm curious, you know, how do you, how do you bring this back to California? You know, like how, how, what, what translates back for you in your life and your community? Well, one of the things is it's really wanted me to move into public policy actually a lot because I'm just like, wow, we have all this drought. Why doesn't California have a statewide rainwater harvesting program like India has a national rainwater harvesting program? And like, how are we going to implement these kinds of knowledge that we have like on a big scale? Can we, you know, these kind of state programs that will like support people to turn over to even a gray water system you know that can be like using the water in a less way so i'm quite interested in like supporting a programs like that where we can change it on like a more large scale than slowly slowly with the people who have interest in permaculture and hobby-ish farms or like small little homesteads like how can we change it on more of a mass scale i think it really needs to involve like incentives and government programming to you know have lower uh lower cost solutions than piping water from super far away and that's not going to work anyways because that water is going to run out because we're not have the ice pack that we used to have and all of these things yeah yeah it's interesting like um it seems like like aranya is tapped into the the top-down portion of it, like the government does have a national water harvesting program. However, the methods that you've described are also very rootsy. I mean, going into a village, assessing people's actual needs, and, you know, it's it's not like like the uh, solutions are being dictated to these villages. It sounds to me like even though it's a program that is funded in a from a, a top-down program, it sounds like the actual the methodologies are more um, grassroots, you know, mm-hmm. community-based. So I don't I don't know if you know that's that's the thing is I don't know that in the U.S. it's easy it's as easy to pull off a grassroots <laughs> community-based initiative because um, people are so separate and have such really different opinions (laughs) yeah i think you know it might be the same as there as the need gets greater you know in the when we had the big drought in the last couple of years they were talking that some of these towns were gonna run out of water so as a town that you own your home in is running out of water i think then you know unfortunately i wish we would be more proactive than that you know than when the crisis is hitting let's all get together and do something about it like hopefully we can learn from some of these places in the world where the crisis is already hitting, you know, and seeing they're going to be changing before us, I think, you know, as they're, they're, the need is greater. And, yeah. you know, and hopefully we can learn from that and be like, let's get together and make these changes before, you know, our lives are being dramatically affected. Right. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely, there's a bit about human nature that, uh, 
a lot of people just won't really act until there's this actual immediate need. And the question is, is, is that too late? You know, in some circumstances. Yeah. So interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating, Rhea, just to hear about your work and get this window into your, uh, your life and um, the work you've been doing with Aranya for the last five years and the story that led you there. And um, I hope that some of the people listening can be inspired to take some of your classes and to reach out to you. Thanks, Andrew. That'll be great. You're going to join us there too. So that'll be wonderful. Maybe some people you know will join you as well. So, Yep. Yes. I am going to join you for the tail end of your uh, water harvesting work there in uh, Andhra Pradesh to do some documentation that so I'm looking really forward to seeing you there yeah that'll be great awesome okay well thanks everyone who's been listening I appreciate you listening and yeah alright have a great day Raya hey you too hey, take Bye. care Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.